0: I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. No, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Now, if I understand Paul's argument here, and I think it's fairly clear, he's saying that the best way to split a church is to believe too much in your, your leaders. Hero worship was the uh, heresy that was tearing the Corinthian church into, into shreds. And uh, it's this issue that Paul is uh, concerned with. He had been informed by Chloe. Uh, We don't know much about Chloe. She was uh, apparently a businesswoman in Corinth whose representatives traveled between Corinth and Ephesus from time to time. And they had brought word to the Apostle Paul that the church in Corinth was about to split. The Corinthians had uh, very conveniently uh, forgotten to make reference to that uh, impending split when they wrote their letter to Paul. As I pointed out last week, beginning with chapter 7, Paul begins to address some of the issues that they raised in that letter. But uh, they had forgotten to mention that this church was disintegrating. So Chloe b- blew the whistle on them. She, uh, she sent word to the apostle that, uh, that there were divisions in the church. They were arguing Among one another, they were developing parties around some of the leaders in the church. Paul uh, writes to express his uh, concern. Now, it's interesting to me that he does not take on first their sexual immorality or their tendency to go to pagan law courts to settle issues between the Christians or any of the other problems in the church. His predominant thought is to deal with this issue of splits within the church. Because if Christians can't get along with one another, they are neutralizing their witness to the world. Almost every day I read of a church splitting somewhere, and it always makes me break out into a rash. Because uh, we Christians ought to be able to deal with the problems that arise among ourselves, the differences that we have. But somehow we, uh, we find it difficult to do so, and this is the passage that tells us how to resolve those, uh, those difficult situations. Now, Paul uh, says at the outset, I, I want you to agree. I exhort you to agree and be made complete. The word has the idea of mending the situation. Mend yourselves by being in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Paul's not saying that there ought to be absolute uniformity of thought within the church. How, uh, how dull that would be. There's a certain uh, body of truth that's been handed down to us from the apostles. Paul refers to it as the deposit. Uh, about which uh, we have no, disa- no disagreement, or at least we shouldn't. We should agree on those things. Those are the essentials. But there are a lot of things that are non-essentials. That Christians disagree on. And we should be charitable toward one another when we disagree. As Augustine said, In the essentials, purity. In the non-essentials, charity. So Paul is not saying that we ought to just think the same way about every uh, issue that comes up in the church. That's that's not not possible. It's not reasonable. What he is saying is that there's one thing about which we ought to agree. And that is our our view of the nature of men and women. Theologians talk about... uh, anthropology, which is uh, the biblical view of of mankind. And this is the passage that spells out more clearly than any other text what God's view of men and women is, and it's the view that uh, we must adopt. We must all agree about these these matters. Now, here's what was happening in the church in Corinth. Uh, Chloe indicated that they were breaking up into various parties some were following Paul now these were the folks that had been around from the very beginning these were the charter members of the church and they remembered the good old days when they they uh, sat at Paul's feet in the uh, in Gaius' house and those were the challenging days of the early church when they were first getting off the ground and people were responding to the gospel and people were coming out of the pagan world and pouring into the into the body of Christ those were exciting days there were a lot of uh, a lot of challenges from the pagan community, and Paul himself had been dragged before Galileo, as as you know. We talked about that incident last week, and these people like to reminisce over those those days, those dangerous, difficult days, and how fearful they were when Paul had to appear before the the Roman tribunal, and and then before he could even open his mouth, the case was thrown out of court, and God did a, a wonderful thing in establishing the authenticity of the church, and. They just love to talk about the good old days when they were with the Apostle Paul, and they formed the, the group around, around Paul. And there was another uh, bunch of groupies that uh, arranged themselves around Apollos. Apollos was a brilliant young philosopher from Alexandria. Luke uh, uh, reports in his Acts of the Apostles that he was an eloquent man, probably the word probably means highly educated. And these people were saying, my, you, 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 ought, to, uh, you ought to hear Apollos teach. My goodness, his mind just crackles. And uh, the intellectuals in the crowd were enamored of Apollos and his way of speaking. And, and they uh, arranged themselves around, around Apollos. And then there was uh, Peter's party. Uh, here he's called Cephas. That's his Aramaic name. That's the, that's the way Paul often referred to Peter. But it's Peter, one of the original 12. And these are the folks that were saying, oh, you should hear Peter preach. He he knew the Lord. He was with the Lord for three and a half years. And I'm my, he he just has such power and authority in, in his preaching. Why, Peter could walk on water. And uh, he's uh, just a wonderful man. And that party arranged themselves around him. And then there was the hyper-holy crowd who said, we're not party to any parties. We are of Christ. And uh, we are not like those people over there that, that are forming that party. We have our own party. And the result was the church was just being torn to, to shreds. Now, uh, let me say that this is not just an ancient heresy. <clears throat> it is also a modern heresy. We all are inclined to lionize certain people, people of uh, intellect, great intellect and and uh, educational background, people that are eloquent, people that are well thought through. And uh, we're attracted to folks like that. We relate better to people and personalities than we do to ideas. Very often our ideas are simply the result of having attached ourselves to someone that we think is is very wise and very powerful. And uh, to some extent we think that if we just hang out with that individual, then we'll pick up some of their glitter. That's what a friend of mine calls guilt, G-I-L-T, guilt by association. If if we spend enough time with those people, then that wisdom and power will, will rub off on us. And uh, that's just humanism. That's all it is. It's humanism, pure and simple. It's, it's believing that wisdom and power reside in, in men and women, and that if we can just get Close enough to these wise and powerful people, then we'll experience something of their knowledge and their wisdom, and we'll be better able to to cope with uh, with life and the difficulties that we have to face. And we say, "I am of Jim Dobson," or "I am of K. Arthur," or "I am of John MacArthur," or Chuck Swindoll. And of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with with loving those people and sitting under their teaching and. And uh, certainly we're all attracted to men and women that have powerful ministries like that. And we want to learn from them. But what Paul is saying is that we must not idolize them. It's idolatry. It's all it is. It's putting them in the center rather than than God himself. And that's what causes splits. I've often said that church splits are never about what they're about. They're, They're often said to be about doctrine about tongues or about uh, eschatology. Uh, eschatology is not the study of French edible snails. It's the study of future things. Um, and, and, and there are certain doctrines of future things that are very attractive to us. And, sometimes, and churches are split over that issue. When when the Lord is coming back and what will precede his coming. And uh, they, they divide over baptism or, or forms of church polity and in government, and they say these are doctrinal issues that divide us, and I, I I say nonsense, nonsense. Churches rarely, if ever, split over doctrine. They almost always split over personalities. Personality cults begin to develop within that body of believers. Here's a very powerful, persuasive person, and we believe in the passion of his cause and the strength of his or her will, and 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 people. People uh, gather in that individual, and here's someone else who's powerful, and and they attract a following, and the church is polarized, and eventually it splits. It's nothing to do with doctrine. It's hero worship, true and simple, and uh, that's what Paul is is concerned about. Now, what he's going to do in the rest of this uh, chapter is give us a solution. He talks first about how leaders ought to look at themselves, and then secondly, he teaches us how we ought to look at our leaders so he addresses him first to the leadership and then he addresses to those that are that are led now you'll notice Paul says in verses 13 or verses 14 and following that he didn't baptize anyone but Crispus and Gaius and that was a deliberate choice that he made not because he didn't believe in baptism he did but he was afraid that if he baptized people they would be attracted to him and what Paul is saying is that leaders need to labor to get out of the center, see? Not, not draw attention to themselves by the way they dress or the way they speak or their, their mannerisms. There's always a tendency for leaders to climb on the pedestal and uh, to want to be deferred to and to want to be uh, consulted and to get miffed when people don't uh, don't brief them on things. They have to always be the life of the party. They have to be in a in a frontline position at all times, you see. And what Paul is saying is that all of you who are in positions of leadership need to be wary of that tendency and and to look out for the tendency of of those that follow you to put you on a pedestal and and keep you up there. We need to 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 seek obscurity as Finland would say. Keep a low profile. Uh, humanism destroys leaders because it uh, when when we uh, when we approve of someone too much and we idolize them they get they get proud, and it ruins their leadership. It's humble men and women who lead best and who serve best. Think, for example, of our Lord. Remember when we were studying Isaiah forty-two and and in Isaiah's wonderful description of the servant of Yahweh and. In his manner, he's described as not lifting up his voice in the streets. He didn't attract attention to himself. He didn't promote himself. Uh, he went about blowing on glowing uh, reeds and broken flax. And, and uh, he was a servant to those that, were, that are around him. He didn't always want to be in the center of things. And he didn't want people to always be recognizing him and acknowledging him. See, now if it's true of our Lord, who had every right in the world... To um, uh, to accept the glory that was his as the Son of God, he deflected that glory, see. And that's what Paul is saying leaders have to do. Now, the second thing that Paul does is to instruct those that are being led. And what he does is talk to us about the way we ought to look at men and women. There's a perspective on men and women that we have to maintain. And it revolves around this concept of the cross. Now, this is a tough argument to follow, and I'm not sure I've got it pinned down, but I'm going to tell you what I think Paul is doing in this this text. Now, look at verse 17. This is the bridge into what follows. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Now Paul could have awed them with his intellect and his uh, his knowledge, his vast knowledge. He was classically trained. He was trained as a theologian. He very often quotes uh, Greek poets. He was aware of classical uh, literature, and uh, he could have put on quite a show for them. But he said, "I, I didn't. I didn't do that. I just. Uh, I refused to do that because to do so is to empty the cross of its." Content. There are a lot of different words for void in the New Testament. But this is a word that means to empty something of its content. And Paul said, had I arrogated uh, uh, you know, some glory to myself, then I, I, I would have emptied the, the gospel of its significance and its meaning. The question then is, what, what is the content of the gospel? What What is Paul saying? Well, the cross says to us that there's something very wrong with us. And it's something that we human beings cannot fix. It took God to fix it. See, that's the substance of the message of the cross. With all of our wisdom, and with all of our power, and with all of our technology, we cannot put right the messes that we've made. Now, you know, uh, right now we're in the middle of, uh, uh, who in the world doesn't know this, we're right in the middle of a, of a, of a political uh, battle and... Uh, uh, various political parties are saying they have the answers to the problems that face us. We have the answers to, to the economy, for example. And I was listening to, I think it was Crossfire a couple of weeks ago, and there were two of the leading economists in, in the United States that were discussing the state of affairs in the United States, and they simply could not agree. They They had diametrically opposed views of what we ought to do to set things right. And for myself, I think they were both wrong. Uh, I'm not an economist, but someone once said that uh, economists are the only people that make a living always being wrong. And uh, I think there's another group that might fall in that classification. It's weathermen. But uh, <laughs> ne- nevertheless, you know, here is a, co- a country that's in a horrible mess. Well, what, what, who caused it? We did. We did. There's something wrong with us. It's human greed, and malice, and materialism, and indifference to spiritual values, preoccupation with material things. We've caused the problem. And now we men are saying, men and women are saying, we can solve it. We're the same ones that fouled everything up, and now we're, we're, we're going to set it right, you see. You ever go to Epcot in the GE uh, display, there's a sign that says, if we can dream it, we can do it. Well, that's human arrogance. We can solve the problems of, you know, this terrible AIDS epidemic that's sweeping around the world. We can solve the problems of the inner city. We can solve the problems of violence and, and drug traffic. We can solve the problems of domestic violence and, and the disintegration of families. And, and and we know what values ought to be injected into our culture to set things right. and And, and that's what we say, you see. In our arrogance, we believe that our wisdom and power can set things right. And God says, no, 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 no. The message of the cross is that we don't have what it takes to fix the world. We don't have what it takes to fix our lives. We need help from outside. It is by God's doing that the world is, is put right. You see, now that's the content of the cross, dependence upon God and not upon human effort. Now, Paul says in verse 18 that there are two kinds of people in the world. Someone has said that there are two kinds of people in the world, those that divide the world into two kinds of people and those that don't. Uh, Paul was one of those that divide the world into two kinds of people. He said there are some that are perishing. They're dying a little bit every day. And there are some that that are being saved. They're a little bit more alive every day. And the difference is the perspective that they have. On the cross, you see. Uh, The word of the cross is to those who are perishing. They're dying every day. It's foolish. Greek word suggests something like insipid, stupid, ridiculous. It's trivial. It doesn't matter. You, You talk to them about the fact that we can't solve our own problems, they say nonsense, nonsense. And they die a little bit more every day. But there are some men and women among us, Paul says, who are being made more alive. They're going from, from life to life every day. And they're the ones that are relying upon another. They're doing this very foolish thing, foolish in the eyes of the world. They're not trusting themselves. They're trusting in the merit and ability of another. Now, Paul says in verse 19 that, that, that God has always been antagonistic to human intellectual pride. His antagonism is historic. He quotes Isaiah 29. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Why? Well, because, because uh, human pride is not just uh, some small vice that we have to somehow live with, nor is humility some uh, virtue that we ought to, ought to achieve. What Paul is saying is that human pride is suicidal. Intellectual pride will kill you. That if you really think you're going to fix your life apart from God, you will die. And that's why God opposes it. It's not that he's upset because people are proud and somehow that threatens him. He, it's because he loves us. It's because he knows that we will destroy ourselves if we don't begin to rely on another. Now, how does he destroy the wisdom of the wise? And how does he frustrate the cleverness of, of the clever? I look at verse 20 raises a series of uh, questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe, that is, the scholar? Where is the debater of this age, the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, Paul says, just look around you. you know, these people that we consider to be the shakers and movers, the wise people of our, of our age, look at what they've done to us. Look at their psychological theories and the fads that sweep through our culture that we buy into and, and we find ourselves worse off afterwards than, than before. Look at what our technology has has produced. With all of our ability, we've produced the most sophisticated equipment in the world to, to, to kill each other and destroy one another. And, and uh, all you have to do is, is look at what the, the great men and women of this age have produced to see that God somehow has thwarted and and frustrated, their wisdom. They're like uh, the the sorcerer's uh, uh, helper, who, you know, dabbling around with the uh, in the laboratory of life, with powers that they do not understand, which they then unleash to a horrible effect upon the world around them. Paul says, all you have to do is to read read uh, the great philosophers of of a generation ago or read the psychological theories of a generation ago and, and see where it has led us and what it has done uh, to us. You see? And uh, Paul says, uh, what's worse? Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. See, that, that's the worst thing of all. In all of our groping around the dark, we have missed God. Not one philosopher has been able to lead us to the knowledge of God, not one. T.S. Eliot said, "All our knowledge only brings us closer to our ignorance, and all our ignorance closer to death. Closer to death, no nearer to God." By the time Paul wrote these words, uh, his uh, age was characterized by disillusionment. The mystery of religions no longer appeal to the uh, 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 appeal to people. The philosophers had run out their string. Agnosticism had uh, pretty much won the day. They believed that uh, our senses are too illusory, our life is too short, and really no way to know anything, and and despair really was the prevailing uh, atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, Paul says, look, look about you. Look at the results of the the thinking of the best minds of our age and, and what it has produced. And nobody out there, not Plato, not Aristotle, not Demosthenes, not any of the great debaters or scholars or thinkers of our age, have led us to the knowledge of, of God. You know what has, he says? It's the foolishness of preaching. Read on in verse 21. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you want something that will fix your life? Well, it's, uh, it's the knowledge that God has come to set everything right. And it's the belief, the confidence that he's at work to do what he's promised to do. See. That's the thing preached. That's what the cross says to us. That it is by God's doing that we are set free. It's by God's doing that our habits are overcome. It's by God's doing that we're freed from guilt. It's by God's doing that we're freed from death. Not one scientist has been able to solve the problem of, of death. Not one psychologist has been able to help us ultimately with the problem of guilt. They can tell us that sin doesn't exist. They can tell us that sin doesn't matter. But in the long run, we know that it does, and we are weighed down with guilt, and we're, we're left in our, in our emptiness and despair until we turn to the cross and God says, I've done it all. It's by my doing that righteousness, sanctification, and redemption is yours. Paul says, indeed, Jews asked for signs. Those are the religious folk. They were They were looking forward to the time when some great religious man would come on the scene and he would be a wonder worker. He would raise the dead and he would heal the sick and he would free them from the yoke of Roman bondage and he would set everything right. The Greeks, he said, searched for wisdom. They were looking for a philosopher that would out-Plato, Plato, who would bring order and meaning to the universe again. And instead of sending some great man, Paul says, what we proclaim is Christ crucified. To the Jews, a scandal, stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness, ridiculous, absurd to them. God became a peasant and delivered up his life for us that's the foolishness of the cross and what that does is set aside all the wisdom and, and power of, of human beings and it says if we're going to exist in this world if we're going to, if we're going to fix our lives then it's it's because of God's activity and God's alone now uh, he has another uh, argument he wants to pursue in verses 26 through 13 uh, 31. He uh, uh, first teaches us how we ought to look at, look at men and women. And if we're realistic, we need to understand that power and wisdom do not reside in human beings. It resides in, in God. And there's no human being out there, no one that we idolize, no one that we put on a pedestal, no one that we believe in who can save us. The deliverer is not going to come from that source. It will only uh, come, the deliverer had to come through the cross and uh, then secondly, Paul says, not only should we understand the, the cross and the, context, the content of the cross, but I want you to consider your calling, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. you are talking about your vocations. talking about your call to be, become a member of the, of the body of Christ, to become a Christian. Consider your call, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Uh, Lady Hamilton, who was a member of, uh, of uh, British aristocracy, said that she was saved by the letter M. Uh, because Paul did not say there are not any that are wise and mighty and noble. He just said there are not many. The truth is when you look at the body of Christ, you don't find too many uh, nobles. Few here and there. You don't find too many that have political clout. Uh in, in Paul's day there were four or five in the church that, that are mentioned that were uh aristocrats, there was Gaius and, and there was Crispus and Sosthenes and Erastus was the city treasurer of the city of Corinth, and there were a few others. But by and large they were just common, ordinary, very ordinary people. And Paul says, Just just look at yourself. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. And uh, it's not that God had to make do with uh, uh, with the lowly people. It's that he chose them. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not that he might nullify, the things that... Uh, that are. See, it, it, God chose a bunch of schmucks, and schmeals, and fools to get his job done. That's what we are. We're God's fools. Uh, St. Francis referred to his followers as the jesters of God, they're, they're the joke that God is playing on, on the world. He raises up a, a, a group of inept, uh, weak people. And through them, he displays his wisdom and his power. You know, as I was reading through this text, I couldn't help but think of of Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham is not a brilliant man. He doesn't have a mighty intellect. He's not even highly educated. His message is very, very simple. But uh, he's the friend of kings and presidents and and, uh, politicians and uh, he has touched lives all around the world. And when you listen to his message, you think, my goodness, I could say that. That's, that's not that profound. No, it isn't. It's just that simple message of, of the cross. And God raised up this uh, wonderful, humble man to, uh, uh, to show the foolishness of the world. He has answers that, that no one else has. Uh, I, uh, Ray Steadman told me a story once about a man that he met when he was in Atlanta, Georgia, he, is, uh, he was an ex-priest uh, uh, in the Church of England. He'd retired. He was in his 90s when Ray went, met him. Wonderful old man of God, uh, deep, uh, deeply spiritual man. And Ray asked him how he had become a Christian. And he said, well, it's very interesting. I said, I went to Cambridge University. And Dwight L. Moody came to Cambridge, Cambridge to speak. And I don't know if you know anything about Moody or not, but he completed the eighth grade, I believe. And he was notorious for slaughtering the king's English. Uh, terrible uh, grammar, never seemed to bother him. He just preached away. And uh, uh, these fellows knew that. And so they, uh, this, this uh, Anglican priest was at that time a, uh, a student at Cambridge. And they arrayed themselves on the front row with plans to heckle Mr. Moody when he began to speak. And apparently Mr. Mr. Moody knew something was going on because when he got up, he, he fixed them with a look, and he happened to look right into this man's eyes. And he said, young man, don't think God don't love you, because he do. <laughs> and that penetrated this man's heart, and he gave his heart to Christ. And, and God began to touch uh, other lives. So what Paul is saying is, uh, look, like don't, don't uh, think too highly of your, your leaders. They're just very ordinary people, just human beings like everything else. The, the only power and wisdom they have is in, in their message. It's that simple message of the cross that everything depends upon God. And then he says take a good look at your call when you start to think of yourselves as high and mighty. Just uh, realize the class from which you came, the pit from which you've been dug. And uh, just recognize that you're very ordinary people that God is using in magnificent ways to touch, touch the world through that simple message. Transferring your dependence from human beings, from earthly men and women, to God himself. So that, and here's here's the bottom line in verse 29, no man should boast before God, literally no flesh, no one, has any basis for boasting because it is by his doing. Did you get that? that that's the message this morning. It is by his doing. Doing that, you're in Christ Jesus, has made unto us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, just think back on, on on your on your past, the guilt that weighed you down. I want you to know you've been made righteous in Christ. That's something no shrink could do for you. That's something that no therapist could do for you. You've been freed from the guilt of the past because God has said you are as right as my Son. So that's what justification is or righteousness it's the declaration that he is in his eyes we are as good as jesus christ we have his righteousness imputed to us so when we are weighed down by guilt and the burden of our sins we can simply remember that he doesn't remember our sins any longer they're all past now no one can do that for you but jesus nothing can do that for you but the cross Secondly, he says he is our sanctification. That's the process of growth that we've talked about. How do you grow? How do you deal with habits and, and uh, uh, the sins that oppress you? What, what do you do with with these uh, uh, with the weaknesses of life that, that constantly uh, distress us and, and burden us? What do you do about those things? You, you can't change yourself. We've all tried. We, we don't do well at changing ourselves. Well, you just... Take that sin, that weakness, and you expose it to the Lord, and you, and you say, "Change me," begin to change me, and it's by His doing that we begin to change. If we don't believe that, then our religion is no different than the religion of every other religion in the world, because uh, every other religion says that we have to suppress the baser instincts in in, in us. You see, and it, oh my, what drudgery that is! It's awful. It's like doing 100 sit-ups every day so you don't spread, you know. It's just a discipline that you go through. And, and it's no fun, but my, my, how wonderful is it is just to take those, those sins and the areas of concern and expose them to the Lord and say, begin to change me. And it's by his doing that he changes us. His own time, his own way, his own place, he changes us. And finally, he says uh, he redeems us, that is, he restores us. Out of uselessness. The term has the idea of taking something out of a useless uh, condition and putting it to its proper proper use. And takes us out of a, our, our ineptitude and puts us to work to, in ways that, that are redemptive and constructive in, in the world. So, by his doing. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, Walton had a, a, an old adage. He said, look, he said, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's the fiddler and not the fiddlestick who makes the music. And that's what Paul is saying. God is the fiddler. Don't look at the fiddlestick. Don't look at the people. Don't glorify your leaders and don't denigrate your own place. You see? Because by God's doing, he will use your leaders and he will use those of you who are led. And it is by his doing that he will fix the things in in your life that that cause you so much distress. Now, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Our Lord, on the last uh, uh, night of of his life, gathered the disciples around him in in that upper room. And uh, out of that came one statement that we can never forget. He said, remember my death until I come. That's what we do. When we gather around this table, we're simply remembering what the cross means. Not only what happened historically on the cross, but what happens in our lives as a result of having taken our stand at the foot of the cross.